All right, so we're in uh, Genesis 13. It's been a couple of weeks. And uh, just for recap in Genesis 12, we saw the uh, promise at the beginning there of God to Abraham that was going to come forth because Abraham had left his own country and uh, moved down to uh, the promised land. And so God promises Abraham that he's going to make his name great, that he's going to uh, make him a blessing to all people. And then on the heels of that great act of faith of Abraham and God's promise to him, we see a famine hit the land in uh, verse 10 of chapter 12, forcing uh, or, or compelling Abraham to move to Egypt where he gets scared of what the Egyptians will do when they see how beautiful his wife is. And sure enough, they see how beautiful Sarah, Sarai is, take her down to the Pharaoh at the time. And uh, that brings what God has promised earlier in the chapter. And anyone who treats Abram badly is treated badly in return. And so a curse falls upon the house of Pharaoh. And in verse 17, the Lord strikes Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And, and Pharaoh rebukes Abraham for his behavior, actually, ultimately for his lack of faith and for his treatment of the house of Pharaoh by not telling him what was really going on. And oddly enough, Pharaoh then not only returns Abram's wife, but also returns with him goods and belongings. And then we see verse uh, chapter 13, then Abraham returning up. And if you remember the, the map from last week, they're down in Egypt and now they're returning up into uh, the Negev, the, the kind of the desert area, the, the, the deserted area south of what we think of as Israel now. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. And verse 1 there kind of gives us uh, the, the foreshadowing of what the issue is going to be next. And that is, Abraham comes back with Lot and all that belong to him. There's going to be a message here that God gives us regarding material wealth and material well-being. We see that immediately in, in verse 2. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And I certainly remember hearing about Abram as I was growing up and realizing, and my ears kind of perked up because I'm, I was raised in America and I was raised around people who actually had, actually we, we saw the two extremes where I was uh, people who had next to nothing and people who were incredibly wealthy. And luckily for me, I was raised around people who are incredibly wealthy, who, who use their wealth for God and his kingdom. But at the same time, my ears pricked up and I was like, hey, what does the Bible say about money and about being extremely rich? Maybe there's a secret here that uh, me as a seven or eight year old boy could learn so later I could have money. And boy, wouldn't this be great? And money must be awesome. Cause, and Abram's a man of God. Maybe if I just act faithfully, God's going to give me lots of money. But don't lose track of what's going on here. In verse 2, uh, Abraham is very rich in livestock and silver and gold. In, back in, verse, in chapter 12, we're seeing Abraham 
promised by God to be blessed. And we covered blessing a little bit in this, actually quite a bit in the sermon two weeks ago in Matthew 5, as we're looking at the blessings that God promises on individuals based on their behavior. And here we're seeing Abram, and, and Abram now is very blessed by God. He's very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. This follows on the heels of what did Abram just do? He sinned. How did he sin? Lied and lacked faith. And yet here's material blessing. So you can see as, as a child, I was a little bit confused. Shouldn't these things go together? Why are these things discoordinated? Shouldn't it be that Abraham is, is faithful and therefore God blesses him? Then if Abraham is not faithful, therefore he takes away blessing. But that's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing a promise of God to bless Abraham is carried about regardless of Abraham. It's not based on what he's done. It's based on the plan and the, the purposes of God himself and what God is going to do with Abram. So in verse 3, he went on his journey from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So we're seeing Abram returning to the place where he should have been, I believe, to begin with, is back at, up there between Bethel and Ai, where he again turns and calls on the name of the Lord. He again returns to the worship of God. Um, he returns to relying upon God and his goodness. Again, blessing here is not only a material blessing that Abram has seen that we often think of associated with blessing, but we see more of that blessing that, uh, um, and I don't know Hebrew or Greek, but that barakht blessing, it's almost becoming more, it's a blessing that means you're, one definition that I saw was becoming more aware of the all-encompassing presence of God in our lives. And we're seeing that with Abram, not so much in the wealth, but in his action where he returns to where he had a close relationship to God, not only in geography, being between Bethel and Ai, but also in his relationship with God, in his worship of God, in his pursuit of God. He moves his family back to where it was good when his relationship with God was right. And we're seeing God bless him there. It would be just as erroneous to believe that the blessing that's poured on Abram materially after his failure, to think that that is something Abram produced as to think that this returning to God and being in a right relationship with God and becoming, as the definition said, more aware of the all-encompassing presence of God in his life was Abram's doing as well. Those things that are blessings in our lives, whether material or spiritual, are brought to us by God. And you don't accomplish those things as a believer any more than you accomplish your own salvation as a believer. What the Spirit started, will He not continue? Do you really believe that your blessings, now that you're saved, come because of what a good person you are, because of your behaviors towards God? Or is it as it was before you were saved, that those blessings come because God is gracious to us. It's amazing what we can find in, in Genesis. Good things versus full life. We're seeing both of these things lavished on Abram. 
God has promised and he continues to do what he said despite Abram. So don't judge your faithfulness based on your blessing. Don't say, well, I must not be doing as well as I should as a Christian because I'm not seeing blessings around me. Um, I must have faults of my own that are keeping me from being not only materially blessed, but even spiritually blessed. I feel like I'm not very close to God. I don't have a good group that's encouraging me, that's helping me grow. I'm not being discipled well. I must, it must be a sin in my life. That's not necessarily true. Don't judge blessing as a sign that you're doing things right. You know, we have that danger here. Uh, if you were here two years ago, um, just in this room, this is more people than would be here on Sunday morning, especially on a day like today. It would be wrong for us to think we must be doing everything really good because, look, we're growing. This, this passage should tell us that's not necessarily how this works. It could just be that God is working through us. Now, God loves to do good things for his children, but we also need to understand that those things fit within his plan and his purposes. In fact, we should know from what Christ tells us that they persecuted him. Don't be surprised if they persecute you. Very often, your faithfulness will actually bring about what the world will look at and say, well, that's not blessing that you're getting now. You're actually having people literally curse you and hate you for what you believe. We're going to go over the budget really quickly at the end today, the very last thing today. And last year was an incredible blessing. We even had the state give us almost, or the the federal government give us almost $20,000 last year because of COVID. God pours out blessings on who he wants to pour out blessing. It would be, it'd be wrong for us to assume that that's because of something we are or we did. And you can't undo the promises of God and win him back with good. Abram's blessed before he returns to God. God's blessing is happening all on its own. The other thing we see here is that we've returned full circle. We've returned to Bethel, to the altar, to worship. Returns to where we left off before the trip to Egypt. So I, I believe literally, 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 in, in, in a sense of literature, as we look at literature and the way this is, I think we're seeing brackets of Abram at Bethel, worshiping God, calling on the name of the Lord. This episode of famine and, and personal failure and blessing bracketed by, again, returning to God, returning to Bethel, returning to calling on the name of the Lord. So I don't think it's a stretch to, to point these things out. And as I said last week, you, you struggle with, well, was he right to leave when there was famine in the land after God sent him to the land? I, I still wouldn't want to say with 100% certainty, but I think there's a lot of lessons you can gain from understanding that he probably should have sat tight and let God provide for him. Certainly makes some sense. So verse 5 through 7, now Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flock, livestock, and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. So in the midst of all this, this gain, all this material gain, we see strife. 
Don't doubt the role of material possessions and conflict. You know, the, the, why are there strife and trials among you? It's because you want for what you do not have. And how do you know you don't have it? Well, because he's got it and I want it. And that's just not right. Why isn't God blessing me? Why is God allowing someone else to have something that I'm not being allowed to have? So material possessions and conflict very often come together. We find those laying side by side. There's a practical side in this conflict, right? Um, There's the fact that there's so much blessing that there isn't room for the two of them to be together. So this conflict is clearly brought about by the blessing that that Abraham and, and Lot had physically. And land is finite. That's the other thing we're seeing here. Land is a finite resource. It's a limited resource. This isn't just we can make more. This is there's only a certain amount. In fact, not only are is there a problem with Lot and Abram, but there's also the fact that the Canaanite and the Perizzite are, are, are dwelling in the land. You have a limited resource that all of these people and their livestock are trying to use. And the, the strife doesn't come just between those who are actual owners of the livestock, right? There's strife between the herdsmen. So the workers are also, it happens at every level, even those that are not materially blessed and owners of the stuff are actually in conflict. It's not that material blessings are bad, it's just we have to be very much aware of them and we have to handle them appropriately when strife occurs. But don't be surprised when strife occurs because of material wealth. You talk to people who have material wealth and they will tell you that there is some quote-unquote curse that comes with it. There is a lot of headache. There is a lot of, of strife that comes with it. And most of us would say, well, I think I could deal with that. Why don't, you, why don't we try? Why don't you let me, let me give that a shot? Let me, let me be challenged in that way, Lord. I, I'll, I'll try. So we're seeing this affect everyone at every level. It's not just Abram. It's not just Lot. It's, it's even their lowly shepherds out on the field are now fighting because of this. Um. And the land isn't Abram's yet. I think that's the other thing that, that Moses is pointing out to a people who are about to go in and take this land is that Abram's living in a foreign land that God has promised him, but God has not given it to him yet. God didn't promise it to Lot either. God promised it to Abram and his descendants, not you and Lot and all your descendants are going to have this land. It's Abram's land in the future at some point for his descendants. But at this point, it's not. The Canaanite and the Perizzite are where they are at right now. The land doesn't even belong to Abram. You know, it also speaks a little bit to the idea that if you want to avoid strife with somebody, it may be better just not to know what they have and just not to to have material things be part of the relationship you have with people. One of the things we see 
that Christ says in your giving, again, we're going to talk about giving at the end here. What is, what is, the, what is the attitude you're supposed to have about secrecy of giving? What's the, the picture that God gives, that Christ gives? Right hand, left hand. What's the right hand, left hand principle? Yeah, you don't want your right hand to know what your left hand is doing in giving. Why would that be? The right hand might realize the left hand is cooler. So, yeah, yeah. What happens if we know of somebody in the church who's like, is loaded? We know they're loaded, right? You know, oh yeah, he's got lots of money. What happens if you know exactly what they're giving and what they're not? What if they aren't giving hardly anything or anything at all? What's your attitude towards them become? Yeah, exactly, because you are a human being, Jay. So, so yeah, you get a, you get, it's, it's really hard to have strife, not because you're, you're pretty sure how someone else should spend their money. We're all really good at doing that. Okay, now flip it. What if you know of somebody who is giving and you're like, wow, they give that much? I didn't know that. Yeah, all of a sudden it's really tempting to say, well, I need to make sure this person, you know, feels good every time they come here. What if they left? And we didn't have that resource that God is providing through them. You start to treat people preferentially because of their wealth. You start to treat people preferentially in a bad way. Preferential is bad. To treat anyone preferentially is bad. If there's anything you want to take out of everything that happened in 2020, as far as race and and all of those issues, take out of it that you should not treat people preferentially. You could treat them preferentially in a bad way. You could treat them preferentially in a good way. Money causes us to start treating people preferentially if we're aware of it. So that's, yeah, I, I have no desire to... To know, and, and you shouldn't either, to know how people give and the way they give. And they should be as careful as they can possibly be in, in avoiding the temptation to let others know how they're giving and what they're giving. Ultimately, it's anger at God for either giving somebody something that you, they aren't spending it the way that you think they should why would God bless somebody in that way? Why does God bless Lot, knowing full well what God's going to do? It's not that, that Lot is the bad, the person that ultimately is causing the strife. It's, it's ultimately that you're upset with God for, for providing. And so you just got to be really careful with wealth. There's so many pitfalls that you can fall into when it comes to, to wealth, especially other people's money. And then specifically when when giving is involved, just be aware. Just be very, very carefully. Give freely. Give, give with joy. But give secretly. Let it be between you and God. It's so much better that way. And, and we, as a church, I think, are trying to make sure that that's how that happens. So then we move to Abram's solution. Again, ultimately, the wealth isn't the problem. It presents a challenge. The problem is the way people react to the wealth and their, their, 
their reaction to one another because they have wealth and, and their distrust in God for who he gives wealth to and why. Oh. Yeah. yeah so it was long, yeah. Not, a, not as much time to be terrible. They got to fit it in. Yeah. So when did that change? No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Despite all of this stuff, God still pours out blessings. Not only his people, but the wicked. Yeah. Which are his people. We're going to find out. Yeah, the unredeemed, yeah. There is a striking difference here where before flood, it was really working through population and we see what happens to the population compared to now God is working specifically with Abram in one line and he has a plan for his people. And it's not that, He's picked a people that are greater than anyone else or a land that is super awesome and everywhere else is, a, is awful. It's God is forcing this to happen. He is... That's, this is what's going to happen moving forward. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So Abram's solution. Abram says to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. And if to the right, I will go to the left. So Abram's solution is to end the strife. Abram recognizes that the strife is bad and that it has to stop. That the strife is the issue, not the possessions. So, that's, that's the, the number one step here in, in how does a leader handle the strife that's coming from the possessions. First is to recognize the strife for what it is. It is a problem that has to be dealt with. And that's part of step two. And that is you got to come up with a resolution. It has to be dealt with. It's not that, boy, there's a lot of strife here. We should just try to get along and hope this goes okay. Abram's like, no, there's strife and I need to come up with a solution. We need to fix this. We see the leadership here in Abram. And again, just as a reminder, Lot is, took the place of his father for his father died in the sight of his grandfa- Lot's grandfather. And so Lot would have been elevated to fill that spot as Abram's brother. Abram is ultimately the one here who steps up and leads in this relationship. He takes charge. Lot, we're going to find out, is not a man who takes charge. Lot is a man who follows what his eyes see are good. So we see that, that Abram takes charge. He, he decides to end the strife. He comes up, comes up with a resolution. He leads in this relationship. Then he puts himself second, where he should have been first. He gives Lot the selection. He gives Lot the selection and he doesn't demand of God either to get what's his right 
right now. Remember, this is the land that God promised to Abram, not to Lot. And Abram recognizes that. But Abram also recognizes that this is not the time that God has provided for him to have his possession, for him to have the inheritance for his, the generations to come after him. I think we're seeing some patience on the part of Abram here that we also see as he's waiting for a child. And we know that his faith falters there as well in waiting for a child. We'll get to that story soon enough. But right now we're seeing that Abram is waiting patiently on the Lord here. He comes, to, comes up with this plan where he ends up second. And I think he comes up with a plan knowing that God is going to work this out In the future, God's promises are real. I'm not going to worry about it. Lot, you go where you want to go, and I'll take whatever. I think this also speaks back to what happened in the famine. He's no longer reliant on, okay, I need to go where the grass is green, as he did when he went down to Egypt. He pursued the greenness of the grass and and what seemed to be the right thing to do, leaving the land that God had promised, where God had sent him. And now he's like, listen, Lot, you take whatever you need. I'll go wherever. You want that green, lush Garden of Eden looking stuff? I will take this hill, rocky stuff. I'm going to be just fine. My blessing isn't tied to the land. I'm just going to stay where I'm supposed to, or my blessing isn't tied to the material goodness of the land. It's tied to, to God, not to you, not to where things seem best. I think we're seeing a, a, a... a lesson learned in Abram here, falling tightly on the heels. I think that's why this happens immediately following coming back up from Egypt. So they separate. And how do they separate? Well, we have, we have Lot. Abraham is choosing to take whatever God gives him Understanding God's providence, not concerned about ease or accumulation, and sinking the kingdom that is to come, not the kingdom that is on this earth. Then we have Lot. What's Lot's perspective? Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. There's Egypt again. As you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly. And sinners against the Lord. There's so much in here that ties this passage to everything that came before in Genesis and everything that's going to come forward from even, even into Exodus, all the way up to the, ex, the uh, Exodus from Egypt as the people are moving into the land. So let's just, let's just break this down here. Lot, first of all, sees with his eyes. Where have we seen that? Where have the eyes come so far in Genesis? Who saw with the eyes that it was good to eat? Eve did. What does that mean? See with the eyes. What's the implication of seeing with the eyes? 
Yeah. That is really awesome. I want one of those. Ooh, give me one of them. So seeing with the eyes. So again, that your, your, your mind should go back to Eve and what she did back in Genesis 3, 5 through 7. And seeing that it was good to eat, she took it and shared with her husband. We also see this flipping back as well to that story as this is the valley of the Jordan before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So the implication there is Sodom and Gomorrah, when it was destroyed, um, brought a new level of desolation to that valley that was once green and lush and beautiful. In fact, this valley is compared here to the land of Egypt, or I'm sorry, the Garden of the Lord, first of all. So Garden of Eden, the garden that the Lord planted. So this would have been absolutely robust with crops, with lushness of vegetation. It's just like that. Like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So, the people that are hearing this are the ones that just came out of the land of Egypt, and they're very much well aware of what the land of Egypt is like. And that, that temptation of Egypt and what is Egypt to the people, we saw it as with Abram in the last chapter. Egypt was a place where he could get relief from the famine. Egypt was a place that had the wealth, that had the, the, the materials that you needed to survive in this world. Egypt continually represents what is good in the world to the people. Where here we see Egypt once again being compared to the lushness of vegetation and and agriculture that's not available anywhere else. It's the world that's constantly pulling and making you think of there is better life somewhere else outside the promised land. And the people certainly continually think about going back to Egypt again and again and again as they're coming out and going towards the promised land as this book is being taught to them by Moses. So we have the wealth that is present. We have the ease that is present. It's easy. You're, you're, you're grazing the same number of sheep on half the land or even, even one-tenth the land because of how much vegetation there is. Sheep and cattle do so much better. They, they, the better fed they are, the more lambs they have in the spring, the more calves they have. They'll, they'll twin, they'll triplet as their lambs. Everything is produced so much better when you have that much more vegetation. You don't have to cover the big areas. It's much easier to care for them. Everything is easy. It's not just that, that there's... There's more food for your animals. It, it propagates on top of itself several fold over what you can do in a dry climate. But we see the lot also ignores the dangers of the people that are there. So as I sees what's good, as I sees wealth, but as I doesn't look to see the people that are there. The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. And we'll see that in the future here when Lot is saved from Sodom. In there's rampant homosexuality to a level we don't even see 
in our country today. Very open to the point of violence in the streets that's ignored by the culture. So it would be very evident what's going on in those cities and and Lot doesn't take time to consider that. He just sees with his eye. He isn't thinking about what he's doing. He sees the wealth, not only of the valley, but the wealth of the people, the wealth of the agricultural community there. And, and we're seeing a background here for judgment because we know what's going to happen. It just said, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, that's a little foreshadowing of what's going to come, not only to Sodom and Gomorrah, but the judgment that God is going to pour out on the people of Canaan when his Israelites move into the land and conquer it and destroy the people that are there. This is the first time that Moses really makes clear that God is actively going to judge these people. They aren't just going to waste away and no longer exist as a people. These people are worthy of judgment and it's going to come and he is going to destroy them all. And part of that plan is to have the people of God carry it out. So he's, Moses is instructing the people of Israel that this is what is happening as we're moving forward. You're going to move into the land of Canaan and just like God judged them for their sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, you're going to be judging these people as well. The whole land isn't as full of sin yet. It's more confined to that valley. So a good lesson for them, because like you and I, they'd, they'd have to think, is it right to kill off an entire nation of people for their sin? And God's making it very clear that in his providence it is. So in verse 14, we then see the goodness of God in this. Abram comes up with a plan, sets it into motion, relies on God to supply his needs, not on, <clears throat> not on what looks good to the eye, not on the lushness of the valleys, but instead making himself second, allowing Lot to take preeminence. And Abram just falls back to his God. So God says to Abram after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes. There's that word again, your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that it, if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise and walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tents and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So God actually opens the eyes of Abraham, showing him what it is that he's received. He's not seeing through physical eyes now, because by physical eyes, Abram again, God isn't saying, now lift up your eyes and go take the land. It's all yours. He's saying, I'm going to give it to you. This is for the future. Keep your, keep your vision on what's important. Follow my promises. Rely on those and look to my promises. Not on what, not on what you think is real, but on what I've told you is coming. Tells him to look from the place where you are. Look from your perspective. Well, from his perspective, he just gave up the best land and took the second best and left it. 
And God is saying, okay, now that you've separated yourself from all is good, now that you're relying on me, you're not going to run away to Egypt. You're going to have faith. You're going to be doing this. Now you're in a place where I can show you. It's not look around because of what you just did. I'm going to do this for you. It's look around and I'll show you what my plan is. This is where we're going, Abram. He's putting himself second. He's waiting on God. He's not concerned with ease and accumulation. He passes on the earthly Eden for a heavenly one. He's looking for that eternal kingdom now. He's learned his lesson in this small little time frame to look forward. Turn over to Luke 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's always an adventure when Toby says turn over to... Yeah, Luke 14, Luke 14, 7. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed, this is Jesus speaking, when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at this place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus gives them a parable, but it's not a parable they haven't heard before. The Jews who knew their Old Testament, they would have been, you would think some of them would have said, hey, Abram. Our father who came before us, who we praise as being this awesome man, he did this. He set himself lower than Lot and allowed Lot. And now we're seeing God raise him up and say, no, Abram, it's you who deserves preeminence. You are the honored guest here. You're the one who I am going to lift up. He's, he had the opportunity to take the rightful place of the blessing and he didn't. He humbled himself, and now God is lifting him up. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And that's what I think the lesson that we're seeing Abram carry out here. It really is pretty amazing. The, the New Testament so often is just a commentary of what we've learned in the Old Testament, kind of not so much saying, hey, you know what, uh, you can't understand the Old Testament without the New Testament explaining it. Um, in reality, the New Testament just says, hey, in case you missed it, this is what happened back there. Um, we, we see that with Hebrews 11, especially as it looks back and, and talks about uh, those who had faith specifically, but especially Abram as he's looking for a land that's not that's not a earthly country, but a heavenly one. There in Hebrews 11, 15 and 16. That's what he's got his eyes on. Now God has shown it to him. He said, lift up your eyes from the place where you are. Lift up your eyes from where you're at.
the outcome is overwhelming beyond just where he will pasture his flocks. That's what got us started here. It was all about a conflict of wealth. It was all about where are you going to pasture your flocks? Is there enough room for everybody? Is there enough money to go around? Um, how do we keep your people from being conflicted? And God's like, that's not really the issue here. The issue here is rely on me and look and see where your blessing is. Look and see what's beyond all this. This will come later, Abram. In fact, the ownership of the land doesn't come in your lifetime. It doesn't come in your children's or your grandchildren's lifetime. It comes 400 years after them before they move into the land. But look up your eyes and see what I'm going to do. See what comes in the future. He's promised that everything he sees is his forever in perpetuity. Moving forward, this will be yours. When it's, when it's obtained, it's yours forever. You'll have descendants beyond number. I used to think, how in the world do you number the sands on the seashore? And I'm, I'm kind of glad that he uh, kind of clarifies that for us. For just as you can't number the dust of the earth, you won't be able to number the descendants. Can you number the descendants of Abram? Let's do the physical descendants of Abram. God knows the number. God knows the number of hairs on your head. And he knows mine get less and less every year. But here we're having the idea that, Abram, you're going to have so many descendants, it's not even, you're not even going to be able to count. Again, we also know that we are all children of Abraham who are saved by faith as he was. That a blessing to Abraham goes to all nations, not just the nation that comes from him. So there's a physical and spiritual reality that's being promised here. And, and we've seen that before in promises to Abraham. There's a spiritual and a physical reality, and one shouldn't outweigh the other one. We wouldn't shouldn't say just as we shouldn't say that there are not Hebrews or Jews that come from Abram. That can't be what this is talking about. This must just be talking about all those that are by faith. We wouldn't want to say that uh, this is only speaking of those who are physically his descendants, for he's already been promised that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. That we are all, from the seed that comes from Abram, blesses us. Everywhere you walk is the other thing that I just want to point out. Everywhere you walk the land is yours. It's how many in here have ever met Rogers, my dog? Anyone ever walked Rogers, my dog? What does Rogers, my dog, do every thirty feet? Yeah, he marks his territory. It's kind of funny. I couldn't help but think of that. As Abram's walking around, it's like everywhere you go is yours. And that's what Rogers does. Rogers is just like, this is mine, this is mine, that's mine. And, that, and that's basically what God is promising Abram here. Everywhere you walk, everywhere you go, that's the territory I'm going to give you. It really literally is yours. Rogers is confused. <laughs> Nobody tell him that it's not his. Um, but Abram is out there and he is told, everywhere you physically go will be yours. Everything you can see from where you're standing is going to be yours. And so we see in the end here that Abram moves away, moves his tents, and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. So he moves away from Lot, and we see the sustaining worship of 
God of, of, of God by Abram, we see God continually to bless him from a spiritual standpoint, allowing him to be close to him. An altar is built to the Lord. So Abram again is calling on the name of the Lord. Again, don't think that's because of what a great guy Abram is. No, it's because of what a great God he has. And it's part of the blessing that he's promised Abram is that God is close to him. God's close to him now. After Abram leads, after Abram defers to Lot, Abram trusts in God, God blesses him. A chapter ago, Abram fails miserably. He lies, he lacks faith, he runs away from hardship. God blesses him. There's a blessing that's coming through Abram that is completely and totally powered by God. You should start getting excited about not only the blessing that's coming from Abram, but also what God can do in your own heart and in your own life. And be encouraged when he does bless and, and know that it's not a blessing that you're bringing about, but it's a blessing that God has planned in your life. And that ultimate blessing that we see recur here is that close relationship with him when your life is closely revolving around and understanding who God is. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much that you've given us these stories that were written beforehand for our learning. Not just as children's stories, they're easy to remember that way, Lord, but also stories that teach us deep theological truths that allow us to sustain ourselves and and understand you and enjoy you. Lord, it's, it is a good and gracious thing that you have given us your word. Um, and I pray that these stories for the, those who are younger that are here would be remembered for the truths about who God is and how he works. And those of us who can swim out a little deeper, Lord, that we would recognize some of the deeper truths as well and have it build up in us a more robust understanding of who you are, that we would enjoy that knowledge and that we would be motivated to get our young ones there as well by teaching them these stories, that they can know you. And later, as their minds grow, and as their faith grows, and as their maturity grows, so will their understanding of who you are. Just by remembering even the story of Abram putting himself second to Lot and trusting in you. Thank you for all you give, Lord. Pray now that you'll be with us as we prepare our hearts to worship you, and that we would not only enjoy you, Lord, but we'd enjoy the gift of encouragement of one another as we sing and, and read your word and as we uh, take communion this morning. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.